0: Welcome to the Trinity Radio Podcast. This podcast has a video component found at youtube.com/braxton Hunter. This means you might miss some visual aspects of the show, but it shouldn’t have a serious negative effect. We’d love it if you’d run over to the YouTube channel real quick and subscribe. And if you enjoy this content, do us a favor. Take a moment to give us a 5 star review on iTunes and mention a couple of things you like about the podcast. If you really appreciate the show, you can help make it better and get extra content for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com trinityradio trinity radio. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter, and you found the channel that loves atheists. Today, I'm going to be uh, reacting a little bit to uh, part of a, or a couple of sections from Graham Oppie's book, Arguing About Gods. Now, I think Graham Oppie is an incredible thinker, and so um, I think that it would do most any Christian apologist who's going to use theistic arguments. I think you ought to read this book, and I uh, think you ought to be aware of what he has to say. This is one of those books where uh, when you're thinking of how you might respond to what's being presented, Just wait a few pages and he'll get there because uh, he tries to be exhaustive and cover a lot of the different things that get brought up typically in these discussions. And that happens with what I'm going to say today. But um, I kind of want to look today at the section where he discusses evidential arguments from evil. And that's going to require that for my audience, it might be helpful if I kind of um, explain the lay of the land and how we got to the specific issue that I want to talk about that Oppie raises as a problem for Um, theistic responses to evidential arguments from evil. So when you approach arguments from evil, we're talking about things in the realm of what's called the problem of evil or the problem of suffering or the problem of pain. And um, everyone agrees that there's a problem of evil. There's a problem of suffering. There's a problem of pain. Christians and atheists are both doing work on problems of evil, the problem of evil. Uh, Basically we agree that there is evil in the world, or if you're a naturalist who objects to the use of evil um, because you think it has metaphysical baggage, then just evil just means everything that is bad that we don't like or whatever Um, stuff that is major suffering or pain, things like that. And so everyone on both sides of this recognizes there is a problem. And that problem is that there is evil in the world. And so uh, Christians don't deny that, theists don't deny that. But whenever an atheist brings an argument from this area, it's called an argument from evil. And uh, there are two types of arguments from evil, generally and largely speaking. There are what we could call logical arguments from evil. And those are the arguments that kind of get you to, I say it this way, they uh, they, they are making a stronger statement, but they're easier to respond to. And then you have evidential arguments from evil. Those are making a softer claim, but they're more difficult to respond to. And here's why that is. So a logical argument from evil is trying to show you that, um, therefore, uh, such a God does not exist or something akin to that. And so all you really need to do, all you really need to do, what, what you should try to do there is to provide a defeater. You may not even necessarily know why it is the case that uh, God may allow for certain evils why he doesn't prevent certain evils that he could prevent if he's all loving all powerful all knowing um you may not know the answer but so long as what you're presenting is even uh remotely possibly the case then it doesn't go through the claim that he do- he can't have a good reason so let me give you an example of how defeaters like that work so i, I think i said this recently on this channel so forgive me if it's repeating here but let's imagine that um Let's imagine that uh, uh, you and another two other people, uh, Bill and Mike, are in a room with no windows. And uh, let's say Bill gets up and leaves for lunchtime and he comes back and he's dripping wet. Now, let's say that um, Mike says about Bill, well, there's only one explanation for uh, why Bill's clothes are dripping wet. And it's because he must have gotten into the shower with his clothes on. Well, you might not have any idea whether that's right or not. In fact, it may well be right. But you know that that isn't true, that that's the only possible explanation, at least epistemically speaking. It could well be that he got caught in a rainstorm. It could be that he fell into a pond. It could be that it was a belated ALS ice bucket challenge that someone pulled on him. You don't know why. Or it could be that he got into the shower with his clothes on. But so long as there are other possibilities that could well be true, even if they're remotely unlikely, then you know one thing is definitely true that the claim that the only explanation based on the evidence we have for why uh, Mike or Bill or whoever I said, Bill is dripping wet is because he got into a shower with his clothes on is false. That is not the only possible explanation. There are certainly other possible explanations. And so what you've said is kind of a defeater to that claim. Well, uh, similarly speaking, uh, we can say that uh, if we see instances of suffering or evil in the world, and we're claiming that there is an all powerful, all knowing, all loving God Um, It might seem kind of prima facie that, well, an all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God who would want to stop it, who would know about a particular evil, and who could prevent that evil, would prevent that evil. But there might be, even if it's remotely unlikely from your perspective, so long as there's any other possible explanation— uh, other than that God doesn't exist, some possible explanation for why a God might be morally justified in allowing a particular evil, then that serves as a defeater to the claim that there is no such Uh, Explanation, or that the only explanation is that such a God does not exist. And so people have presented uh, options there. One could say that perhaps it's God created a world that he knew would have pain and suffering in it because it builds our moral character and integrity. Um, Some could say that um, it's because of libertarian freedom. God wanted people to have free will. Um, and, And so you have these different options, the Reformed theodicy, the Heaven theodicy. You have these different options on the table. And so uh, the logical argument from evil, uh, Oppie says in the book, he doesn't think that people should be so dismissive of logical arguments from evil. Nevertheless, uh, people have, many people have been dismissive. And in the footnotes for the chapter, he actually lists a bunch of philosophers saying just as much. And so the idea is like, since the 1970s, the logical argument has been pretty well put to bed. And a lot of people think it's because it's, it's easy to respond to it. Uh, you just have to think of some possible explanation. Uh, but there are there are updated formulations, and Oppie presents some of those in the book. Nevertheless, that's not really where I want to focus today. The other type of argument, the evidential arguments from evil, that's where you're making a softer claim, um, but it's more difficult to respond to. And the reason I say that is, It's not saying that it cannot be the case that such a God doesn't exist, but in common parlance anyway, it's saying it's less likely that such a God exists as a perfect being or as theism. And so uh, what happens here is um, typically people will point to, and William Rowe is a great example, will point to examples of what we might call gratuitous evil. And uh, Oppie doesn't like to use the the term gratuitous evil for nuanced reasons, but it's the term that I'm most familiar with, so we're going to use it. But gratuitous evil would be an idea of an evil that seems to serve no greater good, like no greater good ends up coming from this. So we can imagine that, uh, okay, maybe God would allow certain evils if those evils not being prevented by God would result in some greater good down the line. And that could be a butterfly effect, something that happens a hundred years from now because of that. Um, and so, God would know that information. A perfect being, whether you believe it exists or not, a perfect being would know that information, and therefore, this perfect being um, uh, would know which evils not to prevent. Um, well. What people that are presenting this idea of gratuitous evil are saying is they're saying, so, but there are these examples of what seem like gratuitous evils, like there's no good that comes out of them. And if we have evils that no good comes out of at all, it at least lowers dramatically the reasons to believe or it dr- lowers dramatically the probability that there is a perfect being or that theism is true, all right? So it's a, it's making a softer claim. It's not saying therefore there is no God, but it's saying um, that it's less likely that there's a God because of these gratuitous evils. So that's a softer claim, but it's more difficult to respond to because you can't just prevent. Pre- present some sort of defeater, you've got to argue for it. You've got to really deal with what they're saying. Now, in response to this idea that there are gratuitous evils there, in fact, I'll go ahead and say there's a couple of examples that Roe has presented and others have presented things like this. And it's the idea that, well, let's take one with that involves humans and moral evils where we have, um, say a man kills his family and then kills himself and no good comes out of that. There's no benefit to anyone. There's no greater good. That's just pointless suffering, pointless evil. And then another example would be there's a forest fire and there's a fawn in the woods and the fawn burns and dies and suffers horribly. And maybe even the fawn is burnt up into ash and there's not even any nutrients to, you know, for any other animals or anything like that. Nothing good comes out of this. OK, so those are our those are examples. And and Roe is careful to say, if you don't think those are good examples or if you think you can find some way that some greater good could come out of those, it's easy enough to think of other hypotheticals that probably have occurred that, that are that you can't get around. Of course, again, that's kind of begging the question of whether gratuitous evils exist or not. Nevertheless, uh, let's leave it there for now. So that's these gratuitous evils. The presence of gratuitous evils in the world seem to make it less likely that God exists. So what have people said in response to this? Well, skeptical theists have said in response, people like um, Weikstra and, uh, and Michael Bergman have, said, have presented this, this idea of like no examples. And here's what's going on with, and like Stephen Weikstra's cornea stuff, here's what's going on with that. They're saying, okay, perhaps that sounds right, except for the fact that um, when any instance of what you think is a gratuitous evil, you can't know. You you can't judge the probability um, that there is some greater good that will come out of that that you just can't see from your vantage point. It would take someone with godlike cognition or godlike awareness to know whether there is some greater good that comes out of that. Because as we said before, there could be a butterfly effect, something very, I don't know if you're familiar with butterfly effects, but it's kind of like there's something very small that, that has like a domino chain effect throughout perhaps 100 years or more. And it could be that some, some domino effect, some butterfly effect happens because of what you're thinking is a gratuitous evil that 100 years from now, something, some greater good occurs. And, uh, you know, perhaps there would be another Hitler or something, and this prevents that. Or perhaps, you know, who knows? You could think of a greater good or some evil that needs to be avoided or something. And a god would know that even if you can't see it. And you shouldn't suspect that you'd be able to see something like that. So there are examples we can come up with to to give this sort of an idea. One example that people have used is to say, okay, if I had a telescope or something that I could actually see Pluto, whether Pluto is a planet or not— I could see Pluto if I look through that that telescope and only on that I say, "Okay, well, I'm looking at Pluto and I don't see any gold. So there's no gold on the planet Pluto. Well, that would be absurd, right? Well, why would it be absurd? Because if you're looking through a telescope at Pluto, if there is gold on the planet Pluto, we wouldn't expect you to be able to see it that way. Right. Similarly. If there is some greater good that comes out of a particular instance of what is called gratuitous evil, we shouldn't expect that you would be able to see what that is. You, you as a human being, you'd have to have a godlike knowledge. Um, whereas there are things that we should expect to see reasons for things. Like if if there was a second moon orbiting the Earth, we should expect to be able to see that by looking up into the night sky. But things like goods coming from evil or gold on Pluto, we shouldn't necessarily expect to see. Sometimes we see the goods that come from what seem to be gratuitous evils, but we shouldn't expect that in every case we would be able to see that. So the point is, uh, well, another example that maybe is a little closer to home is if I looked out in my backyard and said, there are no earthworms in my backyard, I've just looked out in my backyard, and I don't see any earthworms. Well, you, you would say that's silly. If there are earthworms, you wouldn't be able to see those just from looking in your backyard. Right. But of course, um, uh, so this is to this is an example of what we're talking about here. Uh, goods that come out of certain evils that seem to be gratuitous. Again, we shouldn't necessarily expect that we humans would be able to always see what those are, but God would be able to see those. In other words, to support the claim that people like Roe want to make that these are gratuitous evils and there isn't a, a good that seems to come out of them, you'd almost have to have godlike omniscience to know that, and Roe isn't God. So that's kind of how this, this sort of response goes, uh, these no see arguments, no see In other words, um, you can't say, "Well, I just don't see the, the the goods that come out of them; therefore, there aren't goods that come out of them." That's a that's a jump in logic. And um, if if there is a perfect being, uh, he well could um, choose which evils not to prevent because he knows that there's a greater good that comes out of not preventing those particular evils. Okay. All right. So so that's where the lay of the land is, and we come here now. What what Oppie wants to push back on people like Bergman. Is to say, hold on now. If you're saying to the atheist that he can't assign a probability to whether or not some greater good might come out of any particular evil, therefore he can't call it a gratuitous evil, then this falls back on you as well. Because then it may be the case, and Oppie seems to be attracted to the to the idea. That, that, that we may not be able to to say about any particular gratuitous evil, that there's not some greater good that comes out of it. But if you can't know that, then that means that particular evils that you and I, as human beings, could prevent, say, a mugging or something that's happening right in front of us, that we could easily prevent, let's say, um, that, that when those things happen, for all we know, if we... Uh, allowed the mugging to continue rather than preventing it, some greater good may come out of that evil, right? I mean, that's what we're saying about God. God may not intervene at certain points to prevent evil because some greater good comes out of that evil act that, that justifies morally his allowing it to happen. But that means then if you, if you if you can't know about that, then how do you as a human being know if in any particular case, if you don't act, That maybe that actually will result that evil taking place will actually result in some good later on down the road so that if you do act, you're actually facilitating this greater evil that takes place down the road or the lack of the greater good down the road. So, and the idea is almost I think that this is arguing from absurdity. it's saying your your claims prove too much here because obviously we're all going you know thinking normal, morally capable people are going to act to prevent the evil that is. Um, that they're able to prevent insofar as they're able to prevent it like a mugging taking place in front of them if they can prevent it they are going to be moved to prevent it and they're not going to concern themselves with whether there's some greater good that now we're going to miss out on or some greater evil that we're now going to incur uh, if we prevent this mu- we're just going to prevent it right um and so so that so the argument is not that yeah so nobody should ever prevent muggings uh, the idea is that that um, it seems like if we are moved to prevent those things, then that tells us something. It tells us that um, if we don't see some greater good com- that might come out of this, if we're not told about that information, then we are somewhat reasonable in concluding that um, there's not one and that we should act. Okay. In fact, he summarizes it like this, and this is on page 303 of Arguing About God's, He says, If the case that I have argued is cogent, then the skeptical theist opponent of the evidential argument from evil has been placed in an uncomfortable position. The skeptical theist wants to be able to claim that it is not unlikely that there are unknown goods that would justify a perfect being in not preventing evil. Yet, If the considerations to which the skeptical theist appeals can establish this, then they will also suffice to establish that it is not unlikely that there are unknown goods that would justify us in not preventing evil. But if we do believe that it is not unlikely that there are unknown goods that would justify us in not preventing evil, then it is very hard to see how we could fail to be justified in not preventing evil. In other words, then that would lead to a point where we're justified in allowing evil right in front of us that we could prevent to happen because we don't know whether it's going to result in some greater good out of that or prevent some greater evil down the road. So, in other words, if you're going to claim that uh, if the skeptical theist, that's the person who's saying to the the atheist who's using an evidential argument from evil— If you're going to say you can't know that that evil thing that if there's a God, he's allowed it to happen, isn't going to result in some greater good. You can't assign a probability to that. You just don't know. Well, then likewise, you don't know about any particular evil that you could prevent as a human being. And therefore, you don't know what to do. You can't assign a probability to it. And and you'd be justified in not preventing evils, even though we all kind of know you wouldn't be justified in not preventing an evil that you could prevent. Now, I hope that that's been, (laughs) that sounds a little confusing, but I hope you're still with me. Um, Now, one of the, so what comes to my mind is, okay, but one way of responding to this, and this is an example of a good author like Graham Oppie anticipating objections or being aware of objections and presenting them as you're thinking of them. So one thing that comes to my mind is, well, but what if it is the case if a perfect being exists? if God exists, then perhaps it is the case that because he's God, he would know which evils not to prevent because he knows the goods that are going to come out of those. But at the same time, he, uh, he intends for us to prevent all evils because we don't have that godlike omniscience. And of course, he'll factor that in and he'll adjust his plan uh, accordingly right thus the, so that so that it's always good for us we're always justified in preventing the evil that we can prevent um, but we leave the business of n- choosing not to prevent certain evils to god because in order to be justified in doing that you would have to have godlike omniscience he anticipates this and he says on page 304 perhaps it might be replied we know that a perfect being would not make a world like that Indeed, we know that a perfect being would set things up so that great goods will be secured by our prevention of evil. So that's kind of what I said. He responds to this. Really? I mean, he actually writes that. Really? And how is this alleged knowledge supposed to be compatible with our unutterable ignorance about the motives of a perfect being and the goods that there might be? How do we get to know these things while remaining ignorant about those other things that we are required not to know in order to have a reply to the evidential argument from evil? Now, what he's saying is, he's saying, you're saying that we can't assign a probability we don't know, but that it may well be the case or not, that a particular thing that you're calling, that the atheist is calling a gratuitous evil, that no, no good comes from it, you don't know that. You don't know, but that it may well be that there's some good that comes out of that down the line somewhere. So you can't assign a probability to that. What he wants to know is if you're saying that, how can you then turn around unhypocritically and say God would, a perfect being, would create a world in such a way that that greater goods will be secured by our prevention of evils that we encounter. How can you say you know that? Now, um, a couple of things in response to this. Well, one I would, one move I would make is to alter Oppie's objection to his own argument. So that rather than reading um, something like, we know that a perfect being would not make a world like that. Indeed, we know that a perfect being would set things up so that greater goods will be secured by our prevention of evil. I would I would have it say something more like it seems likely so I'm making a soft I'd make a softer move here it seems likely that a perfect being would not make a world like that indeed it seems likely that a perfect being would set things up so that greater goods will be secured by our prevention of evil now why would I say that seems likely well first of all because whether or not this perfect being exists we're positing a being that is a perfect being who would want to minimize evil and who would be aware that we have a moral inclination. And that moral inclination is an important piece of this. Now, I realize that Oppie, once in addressing this and addressing people that are referred to as skeptical theists here, he's trying to respond. He, he's trying to present them as how they respond to this without jumping out of this to go to other arguments and reasons to believe and things like that. But we're not constrained by that. And one additional step that I would include is the reality of our moral impulses that a perfect being would know would drive us to prevent evils where we could further. We are practically in this case where it's not, it's not uh, and he talks a little bit about this. It's not um, hypothetical. It's um, it's, it's a practical issue. Like when you encounter an evil taking place in front of you that you could prevent, it's practically the case that you are going to take action, or you are going to passively stand by. One of those things is going to happen, and so uh, and so you're kind of forced to make a decision, and you can't stand there completely. This is, sounds a little bit like William James, but you, you can't stand there completely, uh, you know, um, confused about this forever. You've got to make a choice, and given the fact that we have this moral impulse. Regardless of how aware people might be of this problem or where they stand on it, practically speaking, because of our moral impulse, most you know reasonable people who are reasonably moral people are going to be practically forced to take action. And a perfect being would be aware of this. And uh, so this puts us... And, and by the way, we would take action... Uh, even if, unbeknownst to us, this results in some greater evil down the line. All we know is what's in front of us right now, and we have this moral impulse, and we would take action. So what, where this leaves us is, thus we must operate within the cognitive sphere that we have, and we leave the rest to God. God knows which evils to prevent to ensure some greater good if he wishes to do that. We don't. So God acts in accordance with his cognitive sphere, and we act in accordance with our cognitive sphere. And a further thing I would say is if by our taking action, we are actually um, ensuring I'm going to put insuring in, in quotes, some greater evil or uh, preventing some greater good then by God's actions of stepping in and preventing or acting in the future. uh, He can control that outcome too. So, we just need to worry about what we do and the just and the, wh- where we're justified in acting or not, and God uh, functions where He does. But actually I think there's a simpler answer to this. and I don't know what's wrong with this. Um, when we use noceum objections to claimed gratuitous evils uh, that atheists might bring, the notion, again, the gratuitous evils, the notion that there are evils that serve no purpose. When we use the no see objections, that Weichstra and Bergmann, that, hey, you would, you, we, you're saying there's no good that comes out of this. You're not in a place to know that. Okay, you, you, you wouldn't expect to be able to see them. We say you have no way of knowing whether there is some greater good that will result from that evil. But I don't see why theists cannot say that, in fact, a perfect being— a perfect being would have some morally justified reason for not preventing that evil. And therefore, the claim that a perfect being would actualize a world in which our actions to prevent evil are the right choice is also something we claim to know would be true of a perfect being. In other words, I don't see why we can't know something about a being that we are positing as perfect. Whether or not such a being exists, if it exists, It would have morally justified reasons for not preventing any particular evil, and it would know that we would feel the impulse to prevent evils when we can, and it would actualize a world such that those actions on our part are the correct ones, Um, and I don't see what the problem with that is. We're saying to the atheist, on your paradigm, you can't know but that there are greater goods that come out of these, but... What we all know is if we're positing a perfect being, we can know certain things about this being, whether it exists or not, because we're positing that it's a perfect being. So we can do an internal coherence sort of examination and see. But supposing that there. So I, I just think that we can we can say certain things about it. And one thing we can say, even though he says, oh, really, how do you know that? Because we're talking about a perfect being. So that's the thoughts I have on that. But then. Uh, Oppie goes a bit further, and Oppie actually raises uh, uh, uh issues about heaven. And he goes into some ideas about heaven and 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 kind of how different how we might frame up heaven differently um and he's got some problems with heaven and uh, they're not particularly new, although he he lays them out in in good detail and um his his idea is that if you have A heaven where we're saying no evil occurs, then it must be the case that there is a limited there's limited free will there, if free will at all, because if people are free, morally free, they will choose. It seems likely that they'll choose to do evil um, at at some point. Uh, Let's let's uh, read what he has to say here. But supposing that there are free agents in heaven. And that they do all always freely choose the good. Is there an explanation of why it is that they behave in this way, given that we are talking about human beings and given that we know about human what we know about human nature? The odds that a large group of human beings will all freely choose the good for any extended length of time are astronomical. Indeed, given the moral evils extend to given that moral evils extend to uh, include even the slightest moral peccadilloes. The odds are strongly against even one human being freely choosing nothing but the good for any extended length of time. Okay, so if you're saying we have free will in heaven, you got problems. Now, if you're a Calvinist out there and you think, well, I could just say we have compatibilistic free will in heaven uh, and throughout this life, too. Then, uh, if I understand Oppie correctly, he thinks that you fall prey to a logical argument from evil. So, so there, he's got things to say to you too. But um, for most of Christianity, that seems to affirm libertarian freedom. H- how then? Uh, h- how do we? How do we conceive of? That? How do we answer this claim that if we have free will? Well, if you've been listening to this channel for for very long, you know that I do supply an answer to that. Although Oppie raises some things that challenge my typical answer. So my typical answer is: Okay, look. Uh, you're going to have libertarian freedom in heaven, but the thing is, it's actually going to be a, a flipping of the script from what we're experiencing right now on Earth. So I'm going to include Christian theology here because I'm a Christian um, in answering this question, but I'm sure others could could present. I mean, this could work on some other theistic framework, although I don't care to defend any other theistic framework. But um, here, what we what we would say is. It is logically possible. Now, not everyone would say this, but I would say it. Um, We would say like Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So everyone ends up sinning except Jesus. But um, it is logically possible. My position is it is logically possible that a person could not sin in any particular situation. So isolate any particular instance of sin. Um, A person could not have done that. They didn't have to do that. And if that's true of any particular instance of sin, it's true of all sin in general. A person, logically speaking, could just not sin, okay? Uh, The thing is, that never happens, and the very idea seems absurd, given what we know about human nature, to use Oppie's language, right? Therefore, we know that, and of course we have scriptural evidence as Christians, that all people will end up sinning. Okay, but it's logically possible that they won't, but the idea that they won't seems absurd to us. I think the opposite will be true in heaven it will be logically possible that a person could sin in heaven. But no one ever will, and the very idea will seem absurd to people in heaven for the following reason. Uh, given what has happened on earth throughout human history, and I'm choosing my words carefully here because there are objections in mind later, but given what, what has happened throughout human history and all the evils that have taken place, um, in heaven, the idea of committing sins like were committed on earth though logically possible to do those things would be like eating sand when both of my daughters were very young uh both of them in the sandbox at some point or other picked up sand and put it in their mouth and would spit it out right because you don't eat sand sand's nasty but kids just do that because they don't know any better But I don't sit around worrying that when my daughters are in their 30s that they're gonna have an addiction to eating sand, where uh, I'm worrying that across town they're shoveling down buckets of sand every night. I'm not worried about that like at all. Is it logically possible that they could put sand in their mouth and swallow? Well, yeah, Uh, but they won't. And the idea is absurd, right? Or seems absurd. Okay, so uh, when we're in the presence of God, and we see things as they are, and we're aware of the evil that took place on earth, uh, though it may be logically possible to sin, it'd be like eating sand. I mean, you could do it, but no one will, and the idea seems absurd. Now, that's the answer that I've typically given. If part of that rests on the notion that it's our experience of Um, Of of free choices that we make and the ramifications of those free choices and of other people's free choices here on earth that informs our makeup such that in heaven we we will know those things and won't do that, Um, then there are a couple of challenges. One is that what we're really talking about here is a process of sanctification that we are experiencing throughout our Christian life such that we are becoming more like Christ. Our character and integrity is developing to be more like Him. As Romans 12, 2 says, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that process of metamorphose, that process of transformation, of becoming more and more like Him, uh, will reach its completion in heaven at glorification. But not everyone, and Oppie raises this in, in the chapter, not everyone who, who at the point of death is, re- is like prepared. Okay. In fact, I've put it this way, like you could have a person, a, a, a woman, say older woman who became a Christian at nine years old and began pursuing a life of being like Christ until she was 99 and then died. Well, she's had and then you have another guy who became a Christian. He would say he was a drunk. He he was a womanizer and all, all these kind of things. And, and he becomes a Christian and dies the next day in a car accident. He's had almost no time becoming like Christ. And if we're imagining that both of these individuals reach heaven at the same time, how can we expect that he's prepared to freely choose the good to the same degree that this woman who lived for uh, 90 years or whatever, uh, you know, that she's developed? Um, And then, of course, you have the issue of what about infants who die, who had no experience of making free choices and becoming like Christ in that sense? You can see at a point like this where... um, a doctrine of purgatory seems attractive to some people, and even people who are not Catholics, like Jerry Walls, who affirm a purgatory for precisely, if I understand him correctly, this reason. Because there has to be some place for that 25 year old guy who became a Christian and died the next day to begin to start progressing in his sanctification, like the older woman who was 99 and still needs to progress. Okay. So that might resolve it. The problem is. I don't buy purgatory and I don't think I have enough good reason to believe that there is such a place as purgatory for that to take place. So I can't have that answer at my disposal. Um, I still think that the, the issues that I raised are relevant and it could be, and this is why I said before that I chose my language carefully. It could merely be that the awareness that real people did make those free choices and that those evils did occur. That that awareness combined with the presence of God, you know, himself in, in, in the um, in the new heavens on the new earth will be enough to, you know, fill in as Oppie says it. I don't think he gave exactly the answer, but he did refer to filling in the difference between wherever a person has progressed to and total glorification. Okay. And and also that would work for for infants. But there's actually a cleaner answer than that. See, Oppie actually provides what I think is a solution to this problem. He just doesn't buy it because he doesn't buy the framework it sits in. And that framework is Molinism. And I happen to be a Molinist. And Molinism, and I'll keep this brief, is a notion that God in eternity is aware of all of the possible worlds that he could create. Not that these are actual worlds out there somewhere, but they're possible worlds. You know, that there are worlds that he, that he knows if he created it would go this way. And there's a subset of those possible worlds where man has libertarian freedom, okay? And so in those worlds of free creatures, God chooses the world that best accommodates the ultimate goals that he wants. So that there's still evils in the world because, and this and this is, you know, part of the answer that a Molinist will give to arguments from evil, is to say there are still evils in the world because there just might not be a world of free creatures where there aren't some evils, where people don't choose to do evil. And so God chose among those worlds the world that that he thought most accommodated his ultimate goals. Some Molinists will go so far as to say his ultimate goal probably had something to do with the the greatest number of people freely choosing to believe and become Christians. Okay, well, uh, Oppie has problems with Molinism that he attacks in earlier in the chapter. However, he tables that for this discussion. And so we're going to table that for this discussion. And he says the following one option here might be to follow the Molinist version of the free will defense developed in uh, by Plantinga in 1974 and discussed above previously in the chapter. Suppose that there are true counterfactuals of freedom. And that means things that the way things would have gone, it had issues been different, right? If you hadn't watched this video, you might have done something else instead. He says, suppose that there are true counterfactuals of freedom and that the truth of these counterfactuals of freedom is not something that can just be chosen by a perfect being. For all we know, it is logically possible that when a perfect being comes to create contingent things, It, the perfect being, God, has opened to it the option of making a universe in which free creatures freely go wrong that is conjoined to a heaven in which free creatures always freely go right. But it does not have open to it the option of making a universe in which free creatures always freely go right, like on earth and in heaven. Right. So um, for those of you who are Christian theologians, you know, when I say, on earth and in heaven, I understand new heaven, new earth language. I'm just trying to keep it simple using the terms the way that Oppie uses them. So the idea here is it may be that in the worlds of free creatures that God has available to choose among because of his awareness of these worlds, there is no world where, where, uh, where where no evil at all takes place where people have free will. But there might be a world where evil takes place on earth but not in heaven. And so he actualizes that world. And so the reason then that people freely choose the good in heaven is simply because there was a world like that, that God actualized. Um, And then you could also plug in to, to fortify it. The other answers that I already gave that, well, you're in the presence of God. You have an awareness of the evil that was on earth. And maybe that's even why this actual this possible world exists. And so those would be some answers. And that's an answer that even Oppie kind of grants. The the problem Oppie sees with it is Oppie doesn't buy Molinism uh, because he has problems with the truth makers as it relates to these counterfactuals of creaturely freedom. So maybe we'll uh, refer to, um, maybe we'll talk in another video, we'll talk about how Oppie thinks about possible worlds and and, uh, Molinism. Uh, But that would have to be another video. So anyway, simply put, when it comes to evidential arguments from evil, Uh, I gave a couple of answers there, but simply put, I don't see the problem with saying, yeah, if you're an atheist, you can't know that there's not some greater good that comes out of a particular thing that looks to you like a gratuitous evil. But if we're positing uh, the the possibility of a perfect being, then that perfect being not only would or likely would bring some greater good out of a particular issue of evil, but he would also ensure that when we act to prevent evils, that that's the right thing to do. He would have actualized a world where that's the case. I don't see a problem with that. And uh, I'm not sure why it has to be the case, as Oppie thinks it is, that if we want to, and maybe he's just referring to only to the skeptical theist that he's responding to, but why if we don't know in the one case, we can't know in the other. I think we can know in both cases what a perfect being would do, and then that serves as uh, to neutralize the, the the potency of the of the criticism. Um, And then when it comes to the heaven issue, uh, it could be that there just was a world like that to actualize. And then, of course, I would uh, fortify that with the answers I've always given that it'd be like eating dirt. So logically, it may be logically possible that you sin in heaven, but no one ever will. And the idea seems absurd because it'd be like eating dirt. Um, And so those are my thoughts on the relevant sections of Graham Oppie's Arguing About Gods. I hope it's been enjoyable to you. If you think I missed something or misunderstood something, feel free to let let me know. I do like Oppie. I I have great respect for Oppie as a thinker. And he seems like a really charming and friendly guy too and a a good writer. So with that, uh, I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.